You're listening to Of Saints and Sorrow, a podcast exploring faithfulness to Christ at this turbulent, revealing, and divisive moment in history. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Of Saints and Sorrow. First things first, I want to give a big, huge, massive shout out to Joshua Etchison for the lovely intro music that you just heard. Josh, it sounds really great. It's exactly what the podcast needed and it makes me sound like I know what I'm doing. So <laughs> thank you for that. Um, so to to dive into the this episode, basically I've been I've been thinking about the way in which Jesus did things when he was on the earth. And obviously for the Christian, we spend pretty much all of our time thinking about what Jesus did and the way that he did it. And so there are, I know from the offset, there are a number of different angles I could come at this from. But one thing that's really been striking me recently, especially in our current moment, is the fact that Jesus formed communities around himself. In the time that we live in, in times like this that are so divisive, there is all this fighting between groups. You know, we think that belonging to a certain group is what's going to give us right standing before God. Um, If you are a Republican, you look across the aisle to the Democrats and are disgusted by their pro-choice ethic. You look at yourself in the pro-life camp and you say, wow, we are the good ones. If you're a Democrat, you look at the Republicans disgusted by their apparent disdain for the poor. You say, oh, they're disgusting. Look at us over here. We are the good ones. And then I'm sure you've heard this before. Oh, if Jesus was walking in the earth today, he'd be a, and then you insert some kind of group that you inevitably belong to. And the more I've been seeing those dynamics play out I mean, they've been playing out for so long, but everything feels heightened. Thanks again, 2020. But everything feels heightened right now. And I just, I can't stop thinking about the way and the many ways in which the life and ministry of Jesus booked so many trends. I mean, even with even with his disciples, with um, with all of the different, when you study the, when you study the, what was happening in in Galilee, in Judea, in Israel, when Jesus was alive, you will you become aware of all of these different warring factions, all of these groups who are who are fighting with each other, all of this bad blood that's going on. And Jesus looks around, he says, he picks for himself twelve disciples, twelve apostles. And I could go into detail about all the apostles, but two that I want to really hone in on are Matthew the tax collector and Simon the Zealot. So to give a little bit of historical context, obviously the, the Jewish people were under, were under oppressive Roman rule at the time. And so you had some who were the tax collectors who were considered race traitors because they basically sold themselves out to the Romans and extracted money, on beho- extracted money from their countrymen on behalf of the oppressing ruling class, which was the Romans. And so they were considered race traitors. And then you had the zealots 
who said, we are going to take back power, we are going to have self-determination by any means necessary, and we will be violent in order to do so. And the thing about the Zealots is, they wanted to kill the Romans, but the Romans were difficult to kill. So oftentimes, tax collectors would be the, would be the recipients of the Zealots' violence. And so what does Jesus do? He has a tax collector, he has a Zealot, he says, you two are part of my team. And I can only imagine what it must what it must have been like as these two entered the room together, they saw each other, perhaps they recognized each other, and they're drawn to this man, Christ Jesus. Everything about the way their lives are set up before they encounter Jesus has them fully at odds with each other. And now Jesus says, you two are on my team, follow me. And then on top of that, you have um, you have the the simmering resentment that a lot of the people felt was the Romans. I mean, there was obviously the Zealots who were violent, but but the way in which the Romans conducted themselves, the way in which they imposed themselves on the people of Israel, it's one of these things where they would have, they would have been incredibly unpopular to pretty much everyone. I mean, who likes to be ruled violently by a foreigner who has no regard for your customs, your history, and your traditions? But then what does Jesus do? In the midst of booking all these trends in his, in his life and ministry, he heals the Romans, he goes to the Roman centurion and he heals a servant. And then on top of that, what's so amazing is that the Roman centurion demonstrates a heart that so understands Jesus that it surprises Jesus. Yes, I've never seen faith like this in all of Israel. And the point that I'm getting at is that as we are here in this present moment, trying to figure out which group is in and which group is out, as we think of ourselves as belonging to an in-group, which means we, are, we have some form of imputed goodness, and as we look at the out-group and say they are therefore bad, we see the example of Jesus looking across this vast array of different and warring people groups. And he's essentially looking and saying, okay, I'll have you from here, you from here, you from here, you from here, and you from here. I don't care if you are fighting before, we are forming a community around me. I am Jesus, and that's the way it is. Um, you know, one thing, one thing as well, just to stick on that whole thing about the Roman, about, uh, about the Romans, this isn't like an official plug or anything, but for any of you who, uh, I know a while ago people were talking about that, um, that, C, that TV show, gosh, The Chosen, and I remember watching the first episode, and I was just, uh, one thing that I think that show did really well, there was that, t- there was that moment where Nicodemus is, um, he's being shown around, I can't remember if it's like a, temp- it's a temple or a holy space, and they're talking with such reverence about the place they've prepared for themselves, where they can worship the Lord. And then you see this Roman soldier just waltz in, completely unaware, completely unconcerned. He thinks he's better than the situation that he's walking into, and he compels Nicodemus to come to the demon-possessed woman. And I thought that scene was done so well, because it really, it really goes so far to demonstrate, at least on one level, the tension and the friction that would have been felt between the, between the two people groups. Um, so, you know, here's, a, here's plug number one for this episode. Watch The Chosen, episode one, at very least. I haven't watched the whole thing, but I hear it's great. Um, so carrying on with the way in which Jesus would 
the way that he the way that his ministry would book all these trends and the way in which i would say that the ministry of jesus really really compels us as believers to to do away with any and every in-group out-group dynamics that aren't well just any of them is the way he treated the samaritans you know we i've already talked about the tax collector and the zealot i've talked about the romans and then there are some amazing instances of jesus and the samaritans so the samaritans they were a people who by and large jewish society hated they were considered less than human to walk through a Samaritan village and to get the dust from this village on your clothes was to make yourself unclean. And um, if someone was traveling, say, from Judea up north to Galilee, it would be quite common for them to cross the River Jordan. So they'd travel north. As they were entering in Samaria, they would cross the River Jordan and continue north that way and then cross back over the River Jordan to get to Galilee, just to make sure that they didn't have to go through the Samaritan villages. But then you see Jesus, I mean, my favorite, my favorite interaction that we see Jesus having with anyone in the Gospels is when he interacts with the Samaritan woman at the well. You know, there are so many things I could say about this. There are so many dynamics that are happening. But one thing, one simple thing, is that he speaks to her like she's not an idiot. He, she is expecting all this hostility from this Jewish man and he starts speaking to her about deep things of the spirit and of worship. And as you contextualize her story, it's quite clear that she was at the well alone at that time of the day because she's hiding herself from her community because of the shame that she feels about her relationship status. And Jesus, in his interaction with her, in acknowledging what's going on in her life, he brings such healing to her that she leaves the water bucket at the well and goes back to the village to tell the whole village, hey, I met someone who told me everything that I've ever did. And what's so crazy about that to me is that after this one interaction with Jesus, after Jesus is reaching out across these deeply entrenched social lines to speak to the Samaritan woman, she forgets, she, she, she rushes back into the heart of the village, the people she's been hiding from, so that she can bring them to him. And I think that's such an amazing act of healing that we see in the ministry and life of Jesus. And it goes, again, it goes across those social lines, those in-group, out-group dynamics that have been formed by human minds and human thinking that completely done away with. He sees a Samaritan woman for who she is, and he brings healing to her. And on top of that, he ends up spending a prolonged period of time in that very same Samaritan village, which as a Jewish man, you would never, ever, ever do. I mean, another thing is the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's, it, it might very well, it's probably my second favorite parable. But when Jesus tells that parable, it's when he's being tested in the law. And someone asks him, what is it that I shall do? To, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And then, you know, Jesus kind of asks the question back, what do you think it is? You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And when pressed on what it means to love your neighbor, Jesus gives this example of the Samaritan. And it should be said before I go even further that one of my favorite pieces of commentary about the Good Samaritan is uh, I read somewhere someone saying that essentially when Jesus was telling the parable of the Good Samaritan, he snuck the Samaritan in through the back door. 
So for many of us who grew up in church, I mean, I remember in Sunday school being told, okay, kids, we're going to learn the parable of the Good Samaritan. So when the Samaritan shows up and he's good, no one's surprised. But to Jesus' contemporaries, for, for, the, for the one who shows compassion on the man who's been robbed and left dying to be a Samaritan, not only would that have been incredibly surprising, but it would have been incredibly... <laughs> it, would have been, it would have been one of those things that was anger-inducing, offensive. Like the very last people who you'd want to be portrayed as the hero are the Samaritans. And Jesus goes and does that. You know, again, we see in, in the parable, we see neighborliness extending itself across these social lines, which according to Jesus, you know, we, which according to Jesus is what you do to live or inherit eternal life. And so the question you might be asking is, what is, why is it that so, why is it that this is so important? What is the point that I'm making when I'm talking about ditching these in-group, out-group dynamics? And one thing that I've realized is that for us as believers, when we are trying to be faithful witnesses, when we're trying to be faithful representations of the kingdom of God, when we're trying to embody the kingdom of heaven here on earth, when you are clinging to these, and I've seen it in my own life as much as I've seen it in other people, but let me, let me talk about myself. Like when you cling to these group, when you cling to these group dynamics, the first thing is it's easy to completely overlook large swathes of your brothers and sisters it's really easy to categorize them and say well they're not in my group therefore they're bad you know they belong to this political ideology they are from this country they are uh they do this or they do that and they are bad and i'm good and the second thing is it's really easy to fail to see the giant log sticking out of your own eye you look at the speck in the in your brother and sister in this other group and then all the while you have this log sticking out of your own eye, but because you're in this group that you have deemed to be good, you overlook it. And I, you know, like as I say, I, I've seen it in my own life. It's one of these things that even when I think that I'm making progress, God will be kind enough to, <laughs> to engineer situations that make it totally clear that I'm working in those dynamics again. And then the second thing is it actually stunts your imagination and your reasoning. You know, if the if the in-group that you belong to is America and not just Christ alone, then when you see children being separated from their parents at the border, as we saw earlier this year, you'll make peace with it because it's what my in-group needs. It's what the nation needs. If you are proudly Republican, you'll call yourself pro-life but then perhaps you'll support the death penalty or you'll, or you'll resist programs that ease the burden of poverty in poor communities, even though poverty is one of the leading causes of abortion. You know, and that goes to another thing is that when you, when you, when you tie yourself so strongly to an in-group, it, it, it really stunts your critical thinking it really stunts your ability to see things i mean i suppose i'm just reiterating this thing about the giant log sticking out of your eye it stops you from seeing things and if you're perhaps someone who is more of a democrat perhaps you'll get up in arms about issues facing people of color but then at the same time you'll say nothing about gentrification 
you know, I've been recently confronted in my own life about something along these lines. I was having a conversation with Ryan Collins, who's a leader here at Bethel. He's a great guy, real, real heart for justice, real, real heart for uh, racial reconciliation. He's spearheading this amazing thing called Faith and Prejudice that I would strongly encourage everyone to to check out after after this podcast. And we were we were having this great conversation today. And he mentioned something about Colin Kaepernick. He was talking to me about how much he genuinely appreciated the work that Colin Kaepernick was doing on behalf of the black community when it comes to police brutality. But at the same time, he was incredibly disappointed when Colin turned round and signed a multi-million dollar deal with Nike. So the problem with Nike is, is that they are well known for their uh, exploitative practices in the two-thirds world. And as Ryan said this to me, I, I, didn't, I didn't let him know how much that was resonating with me at the time. But I, just, I was just hit by the fact that, yeah, you know, he's, he's standing on behalf of... Colin Kaepernick was standing on behalf of the marginalised on one hand, but then on the other, he was profiting from the exploitation of the marginalised by signing with Nike. You know, and I know that a lot of you who are listening right now probably have a lot of Nikes. I bet if I was to ask everyone who was listening, how many of you can say with any degree of certainty that all of the clothes you are currently wearing have not been made by youth, by the utilization of child labor? Hardly any of you could say, hardly any of you could say with confidence that you knew that. And here's the thing, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that Christians should be people who are down on absolutely everything. But I do think that part of part of our place in this world is to is to offer a different way, is to be a shining example of a different way. And if we align ourselves with these groups that aren't Christ, then the thing is in order to be part of those groups, we have to we have to have a double standard. We have to we have to be continually making compromises. And I feel like I'm at a place in my own life where I don't actually want to be someone who's making compromises in order to maintain my status within in-groups that have nothing to do with Christ when it really comes down to it. And so the title of this podcast is Escape the Rot. And as far as I'm concerned, the rot are those in groups that we have that we've grown up around that are part of our community that are part of our culture that aren't actually Christ many of them will profess to be christian but when you compare what they believe to the words of christ you can see you'll be able to see a startling disparity and so i know in my own life there's been this journey that i've been on when i've been, where i've been trying to divorce myself from all of these things that shouldn't have had my allegiance in the first place you know, it was probably about a year or so ago as I was watching Christians bend over backwards to support Trump, even with the um, with the things he said that I found incredibly unsavory, with the locker room talk, with any number of things. I I just could not believe what was happening in front of my in front of my eyes, and as I was interceding slash moaning it became clear to me that I'd actually I'd actually joined <laughs> it became clear to me that 
as much as I was looking down on other people for joining themselves to the Republican Party or to conservatism in a way that was not healthy, I was actually doing the same thing, but to the other side of the to the other side of the argument. And since that since that time, I've been working really, really hard. I've been trying to stay really, really aware of when I let these in-group, out-group dynamics poison my thinking, rot my thinking, when I, let, when I allow them to stunt my imagination. And so I just want to encourage you to do the same, whatever that may look like. Even if you have to spend a few minutes in reflection, just being honest with yourself, wondering where you've allowed these dynamics to taint the way you see things. As far as I'm concerned, that's where life is found, in, in getting rid of those things and... and clinging to Christ only. I believe that the church can do it. I believe we can be better than our situations, than our situation. I believe we really can be that shining light, that example of another way. Bless you guys, and thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.